Okay, we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have worked out your plan of salvation. We saw last week in the book of Judges that mankind, and that includes us, is unable to break the ongoing cycle of sin. But we're so glad that you have provided a way out of that. You have provided a deliverer. And we see the beginning steps in that as you establish the line of kings that will eventually result in the Messiah, the ultimate king. We're thankful for that. We ask you to help us to understand these things more deeply. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Jesus Christ, our King. You look good up there, Dana. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I've got my perm tie on. The Septuagint considered First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings one unified composition, one big book. The Book of Kingdoms, they called it. The four subparts of the book are the Kingdoms Alpha, Kingdoms Beta, Kingdoms Gamma, and Kingdoms Delta. In other words, the first four letters of the Greek alphabet. In, in modern Hebrew Bibles, the four books are called the are called Shmuel Aleph, Shmuel Bet, uh, Malachim Aleph, and Malachim Bet. Aleph and Bet being the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And Shmuel is the Hebrew for Samuel. And Malachim is the Hebrew word for kings. So that's where those names came from. Not too complicated. We'll look at the flight, the facts, the landmarks, the itinerary, the gospel, the history, and the travel tips. The author of 1 Samuel is not known for certain. Many scholars believe that Samuel compiled the information and then communicated it to the prophets Nathan and Gad, who then wrote it down. Because remember that Samuel dies in 1 Samuel, so he can't be the author of the whole thing. After the time of the judges, Israel was on a collision course with chaos and captivity. True leadership was sadly lacking. The people had strayed from God. The book tells the stories of men and women who, in their distress, called on the Lord. The itinerary, the outline of the book, well, there's three adversarial relationships that are set up in the book. First, there is Samuel and Eli, prophet versus priest, chapters 1 through 7. Then there is Samuel and Saul, prophet versus king, uh, chapters uh, 8 through 15. And then finally, Saul and David, king versus successor, chapter 16 through, uh, that should be 31, <laughs> not 13. 31. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Something like that. It had always been God's plan that someday he would rule through a king. However, the Israelites pushed the, the issue and didn't want wait on God's timing. That's how they ended up with Saul. David, a man after God's own heart, of the tribe of Judah, was an ancestor of Jesus, king of kings. 
prophesied son of David. First Samuel begins with the birth of Samuel, follows the transformation of Israel from tribal alliances to a united monarchy, concludes with the death of Saul. So it begins about 1105 with the birth of Samuel and continues to about uh, 1009 BC when Saul died. Actually, he took his own life eventually. Saul failed to take sin seriously. These are the travel tips, things we can learn from the book. Saul failed to take sin seriously, and he placed reputation over character. So that's an example that we want to avoid. And also, we've seen this many times now, with the judges and also with Samuel. God looks at a person's heart. We so often look at their appearance. He regularly chooses to use unlikely people, and he does it to remind us that he is in charge. Samuel was a very important character in the Old Testament. Sometimes we don't realize just how important he was. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah quotes God talking. God says, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, I wouldn't do thus and such. So these, these Moses ranks or Samuel ranks right up there with Moses in importance. And then the prophet Hosea says, by a prophet, meaning Moses, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, Samuel, he was guarded. Israel was guarded by Samuel. So great importance is placed upon Samuel. Sometimes he's overlooked. Like Moses and Joshua, Samuel gives a farewell address. But there's a difference between his farewell address and those of Moses and Joshua. Unlike Moses and Joshua, Samuel goes on living for some years after his farewell address. Both Moses and Joshua die shortly after their farewell addresses. His death is not recorded until Samuel 1 Samuel 25, 1. So he gives his address in chapter 12, and he doesn't die until chapter 25. Just a, a note about the climate of Israel, as we're talking about uh, the farewell address of Samuel. If I said to you, I'm a prophet, and to prove to you that I'm a prophet, I prophesy that there will be thunder and rain this summer. You'd say, we always have thunder and rain in the summer. That doesn't prove anything. Well, that's because we live in Minnesota. If you live in Israel, it does not rain in the summer. That's why we read this in, in Samuel's farewell address. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So rain in the summer here would be no big deal. But in Israel, it's remarkable, most remarkable. The people were stunned. 
when this happened. Now, regarding Samuel's tribal background, according to 1 Samuel 1 1, Samuel is from the tribe of Ephraim. But according to Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 6 27 through 28, he is a Levite. What's going on here? How can that be? Though technically from the tribe of Ephraim, as a Nazarite devoted by his mother to service at the sanctuary in Shiloh, and there performing Levitical functions, he was considered by later genealogists as a Levite. So he was actually from the tribe of Ephraim, but because he was a Nazarite devoted to the Lord, he was considered a Levite. So he actually fills the, the roles of prophet and priest. I guess you could also say he's a judge too, so he wears a lot of hats. There are a couple of, of prophetic bookends in 1 Samuel. We read about Hannah. We're introduced to Elkanah, a man from Ephraim. He has two wives. One of them is fertile, Anina, and one of them is barren, Hannah. Year after year, they come to Israel to worship and offer sacrifice. And Hannah is praying for a child. She is praying that she will no longer be barren. And the prayer of Hannah, near the beginning of 1 Samuel, and the Song of David, near the end of 2 Samuel, they form sort of bookends, poetic bookends, for 1 and 2 Samuel. Both of these, this prayer and this song, they celebrate in thanksgiving form the faithful workings of Yahweh. Now, there are three people who are very unhelpful and insensitive to the plight of Hannah. One of these people is Peninnah, her rival co-wife, who taunts and insults Hannah. Second, there is her husband, Elkanah, who asks, am I not more to you than ten sons? So, what are you crying about? What are you worrying about? And then, finally, there is Eli, the priest who interprets Hannah's silent praying. She's praying silently, but her lips are moving, so he thinks she's drunk. So these three aren't really much encouragement to Hannah. But she persists. And praying for a son. Now, other vows throughout the Bible take this form. If you will do X, then I will do Y. But Hannah's vow is a little bit different. Hannah's vow takes this form. If you give me X, then I will give you X. So Samuel is not only a gift from God, but he's also a gift to God. Now this prayer of Hannah, it has parallels with the Song of David later in, in 2 Samuel. Uh, it also has parallels with Psalm 113. And it also looks back to a song that Deborah 
things in Judges. But the parallel that we're most interested in is the parallel between the prayer of Hannah and the Song of Mary in the New Testament. So I've listed uh, these scripture references on your handout. But now let's look at what these scripture references actually refer to, comparing the, the prayer of Hannah to the Song of Mary and the experiences of Hannah and Mary. Mary, the maidservant of the Lord, has found favor with God. We read that in Luke. And Hannah says, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So, you see that parallel? The maidservant who finds favor. Mary says, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his maidservant. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, Hannah uses the same Greek word for lowliness. The Greek word for the inn that was unavailable to Mary and Joseph is the same word used in the Septuagint for the place where Elkanah and Hannah, the future parents of Samuel, stayed in Shiloh. We are told that every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Samuel, Samuel's parents would go up year after year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh. So there's another parallel. When all was completed, Mary and Joseph returned to Galilee, to their hometown of Nazareth. Elkanah and Hannah would do the same, and then they would return to their home. And then there are parallels between their sons. We read of Jesus, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Jesus increased in wisdom and in years, and in divine and human favor. And the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord, and the boy continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. So as you can see, there's a lot of parallels between the experiences of Mary and Hannah. Now this is the beginning of all sorts of trouble. Israel asking for a king. The elders of Israel request that Samuel appoint a king over them. Samuel attempts to dissuade them from what he perceives as foolishness. God decides on the matter. Three times he instructs Samuel to listen to the voice of the people. So, if the people want a king, God is going to give them one. It wasn't wrong per se for the people of Israel to request a king. 
kings were anticipated in the scriptures prior to this. To Abraham, part of the promises that were made to him, kings shall come from you. And it doesn't just say king, meaning the ultimate king, Jesus. It's talk, it says kings, plural. And the same promise was made to his grandson, Jacob. Kings shall spring from you. And of course, you're probably familiar with this scripture from Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So it even identifies which tribe the king would eventually come from. And then in Deuteronomy 17.14, we're given specific instructions for the office of king. It tells what the king should do and what the king should not do. It tells us that the king is to copy down a copy of the Torah. So he's supposed to be immersed in the word. And it tells him three things to avoid. He shouldn't have a lot of wives. He shouldn't have a lot of horses, meaning power, military power in those days. And he shouldn't amass great wealth. Those are the three things that generally get rulers in trouble. Women and power and, and uh, wealth. So it wasn't really wrong to ask for a king. It was just the motivation. The people of Israel wanted a king so that they could be like their pagan neighbors. That was the reason they wanted a king. They weren't really concerned with the instructions that God had given regarding kingship. Israel wanted a king for several reasons, and to the people they seemed very practical. Samuel was advanced in age, and like Eli, unfortunately, he had two delinquent judge sons. Eli did, so did Samuel. Two wayward sons. There was the desire to conform to surrounding nations and their government by monarchy. They wanted to be like their neighbors. The neighbors have a king, why can't we? And there was a, a deep sense that a national leader, such as a king, would unite a deeply fractured nation, which then could present a much stronger front against invading armies. Well, we can see the uh, false hope there as we look at our national leader who is not able to bring together a fractured, divided nation. Saul was chosen king not just once, but in three different ways, three different times. Saul was chosen as king by God. God chose him and anointed him. By chance, he is made king by lot. They drew lots to determine who should be the king. And remember, uh, after they selected Saul, he was nowhere to be found. He was hiding in the baggage, whatever that means. But I mean, can't, can't you just imagine a guy who's almost seven feet tall trying to hide in the baggage? 
It's a rather comical scene. And then he was, he was made king by his own proven capacity for leadership. The people made him king after he, after a successful deliverance of Jabesh Gilead. The city of Jabesh Gilead was surrounded, it was under siege. And the ruler of their enemies said, well, I'll let you live as long as you let me gouge out your right eyes, all of you. Well, they uh, went to help, went to Saul for help, and Saul raised a huge army, 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. So initially, Saul showed great promise. He, he seemed to be a very competent leader. We could also say the same of Jesus, that he was chosen king three different ways. By God. He was chosen by God to be the king of glory. By chance, at least from the human perspective, it seemed to be by chance. He was born at the right time, in the right place, and into the right family. And by his own proven capacity for leadership. When he had the opportunity either to retreat and avoid his, his mission, or to advance, he chose to advance toward death and life. At 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, there is a textual problem. The text is corrupted at this point. Some of the words are missing. Uh, literally, it says, Saul was blank years old when he began to reign, and he reigned blank and two years over Israel. Now, fortunately, we don't have to just throw up our hands and say, well, how can we know? Two other sources indicate that Saul ruled for 40 years. In Acts 13.21, Paul states that Saul ruled 40 years, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his Antiquities, also attributes a 40-year reign to Saul. It is possible that the, the 40 years is a round number, an estimate. The text may have originally said 42 years, 40 and 2 years. As I said, Saul started out his reign with so much promise but he made two very serious blunders. When Samuel fails to show up after a seven-day waiting period, he had been told to wait for seven, year, seven days and Saul would be there to offer sacrifices. But the seven days were passed and Samuel hadn't shown up yet, so Saul takes matters into his own hands and offers sacrifices. He has overstepped his bounds as king, doing what only priests are supposed to do. Priests are supposed to offer sacrifices, not the king. And the other thing that really sealed Saul's fate, losing the kingship and not establishing a dynasty, Saul was to attack and utterly destroy the Amalekites. No person or thing was to be spared. 
I talked about that concept of harem uh, back in uh, Joshua. There were certain people, the Canaanites namely, that, that, Paul, that, that the Israelites were to destroy, and there was a special curse upon the Amalekites. But Paul, Paul spared the Amalekites, the, the, the king, Agag, spared him, and he also spared the best of the sheep and cattle. He failed to comply with the instructions Israel had been given concerning the Amalekites. And they're very explicit. In the time of Moses, the Amalekites gained infamy by preying on the sick and the weak, those who traveled at the rear, as the Israelites made their way to Canaan, which, like a wolf, preys on the struggling sheep. God commands Israel, once securely in the land, to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So you can't get much more specific than that, much more explicit. But, Samuel, but Saul failed to carry out those instructions. So then Saul is rejected and David begins to emerge as the divinely chosen replacement to the disqualified Saul to be Israel's king. What the people had earlier done to God, he has now done to Saul. God said, they have rejected me from being king. So he says, I have rejected him, Saul, from being king. The people had rejected God from being king, so then God rejects Saul from being king. God had told Samuel, appoint a king for them. But now he says, I have provided a king for myself. So now God is choosing a man after his own heart. David does two remarkable things in, in the service of Saul. And both of those are skills that he already has. He uses a skill that he already possessed. One skill was playing the lyre, and the other skill was slinging stones, very accurately. In a situation that services unexpectedly, Saul's sickness, by playing music for Saul, he's able to calm him down and settle his distressed nerves. And then also by his skill of slinging stones, he is able to kill Goliath who makes intimidating threats of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord comes mightily on David. That's the, the real source behind David's ministry to Saul and his elimination of Goliath. And that's often the way God works. He directs the circumstances in believers' lives so that they develop skills that he will later on use by the power of the Spirit for his purposes. Now, I thought it would be best to look at some maps to trace the movements of David and Saul. These maps cover that period when, when David and Saul are 
having their run in. So you can see this, this is the valley of Elah, where David and Goliath had their famous confrontation. So there's a map, and you can see that Let me see my cursor or not. Do you see it? No. Okay, well, I'll try this again. Laser pointer. There it is. Okay. So you can see the map here. Over here to the right is Jebus, Jerusalem. You can see where, where things are in relation to one another. There's Bethlehem down here and Gibeah up north of Jebus or Jerusalem, that's where Saul had his capital in Gibeah. Mizpah is the place where uh, the prophet, the uh, judge Samuel often called Israel together together. And so over here in this area that you'll see the inset down below, that's where the Valley of Elah is, where David and, and Goliath had their famous confrontation. So the Israelite camp is up here, and the Philistine camp is down here. And there's a, a, a broad field in between those two. There's two, a, ridge, a ridge here, up here, and a ridge down here. Hills where the armies were encamped. And there's a plain down between them. Here's another map of the Valley of Ella. Uh, back, back here is Gilgal by the Jordan River. That's where Israel first camped when they came into the Promised Land. Which again, here's Jebus or Jerusalem and Gibeah of Saul, where Saul had his capital. And here's an inset where the Valley of Elah is. Once again, the Israelite camp, Palestine camp. Here's some, some pictures of that place. Here's an aerial view. You can see that there's a, a hill or ridge over here, and there's another one over here, and there's a broad plain in between them. So the Israelites were camped on one hill, and the Philistines on another hill. And you can see here, there's a, a stream bed running through here. It's dry much of the year. And, and here's a, a closer look at that stream bed. In 1 Samuel 17, 40, it says this, He, meaning David, took his staff in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine, meaning Goliath. So this is where it happened. Tourists who go to this location in Israel often uh, pick up a rock as a souvenir to take home from this, this place where David slew Goliath. And I've often joked that probably what they do is they have a big dump, dump truck full of rocks that comes here periodically and <laughs> re replaces the supplies. <laughs> so there's a, another view. Here you can see both hills. This hill over here where the Philistines were encamped in this hill over here where the, where the Israelites were encamped in camp, and this broad plain in between where 
David and Goliath had their famous confrontation. So here's a, a map of the Valley of Elam, where that, that, that took place, the confrontation between David and Goliath. And over here you can see some of the other movements of David prior to that. He was from Bethlehem. He went up to Gibeah, Saul's capital, where he was the harpist. He played music for Saul. Uh, Saul tried to kill him more than once. Saul tried to... Uh, a new twist on the party game of pin the nail on the donkey, pin the spear on the, on the musician. Fortunately, uh, Saul wasn't very, very accurate in his throws. But at one time, David fled to Ramah, which was, which was the home of Samuel. That's where Samuel lived. The next thing that happens is that Saul is trying to kill David, and David is moving around a lot. You see all of these little uh, white circles with numbers in them? Those are all places that, that, Samuel, that, that David fled trying to get away from Saul. Uh, at one time he was at En Gedi, down here by the Dead Sea. Some of you have been there. Um, it's not certain, but uh, when it says he was at the stronghold, he may have actually been at Masada. Now, this was centuries before Herod built his palace on top of Masada. But uh, Masada would, would be a good place to hide out if, if you had lots of water and food. <laughs> if you didn't, you were in big trouble. Um, you can see that one of the places that he was hiding was the forest of Hereth. And you see a question mark after that. I'm not sure where that was exactly. But he moved around a lot. He, he was over, at times, over in the Philistine city of Gath, which was actually the, the hometown of Goliath, his nemesis. There's another map of showing all the places that David was hiding from Saul. Once again, there's Engedi and Masada down here, where Masada may have been a hiding place. There's Hebron, which was the place where David, where David will later become king. At first, he's only the king of, of Judah before he moves to Chebus or Jerusalem and becomes the king of all Israel. On this map here, the, uh, the green lines are the movements of David. So you can see how he's, he's doing a lot of moving around to try to keep out of Saul's grasp. And Saul is trying hard to get him. Both Saul and David had their informants to try to keep ahead of the other one. So, um, one of the things that happened was, David, you remember this incident because it's, it's talked about in the Gospels where, where David went to the priests and he was given the, the showbread, the bread of the presence because his men were very hungry. 
And Jesus uses that same example, that same illustration, when his uh, his disciples are criticized for for uh, harvesting, you know, for picking grain heads of grain as they go through the fields on the Sabbath day. And Saul became so blind in his rage, so vicious, that he actually killed the priest and large numbers of priests for helping David. Because like I said, they had, they each had their informants and Saul had an informant in David's group, Doag, the Edomite, who told Saul that the priests had helped David. Here's some more movements of David hiding from Saul. Now, one of the one of the places that figures into this story of David is Carmel. And this is not the Carmel that we usually think of. We usually think of the Carmel that's up north, where the prophet Elijah had his famous confrontation with the, the prophets of Baal by the Jezreel Valley. This is a different Carmel. And this figures into the story. Here, here's another map of David running around, hiding, trying to get away from Saul. This is the place, Adullam, where, where David gathers 400 fighters, 400 men. And... Uh, the, the people who come to David are not exactly the cream of the crop. They're not the people that you would expect to be heroes in Israel. Now, the reason I mentioned Carmel is because that figures into the story of Abigail, where David meets Abigail, is in this area by Carmel. And it's this Carmel in the south, not the Carmel that we usually think of in the north. It's interesting that uh, David also had a sister named Abigail. So he had a, a sister named Abigail and a wife named Abigail. They're two, two different people, of course. Here's a map of showing many of David's exploits and showing the time when he went to Carmel where he met, met uh, Abigail. And I'll tell you more about this in a little bit where he goes from Ziklag clear up to Aphek and then back again. And he discovers some really bad news. This green line uh, is not events in First Samuel, this is in Second Samuel, that we'll cover next week, where after the death of Saul, David goes up to Hebron, where he becomes king of Judah, and then eventually he goes up to Jebus or Jerusalem and establishes capital there to become king of all Israel. Now I mentioned about Aphek. At one point, David takes refuge among the Philistines, his sworn enemies. One time he goes to them and, and uh, feigns 
insanity. He starts foaming at the mouth and pretends that he's insane, so to throw them off the off the track. But then he comes to the Philistines another time. And the reason that he goes up to, from, from Ziklag, where he's based, he goes up to Aphek. And the reason he does that is because the Philistines are planning a major campaign, a major war against Israel, against the forces of Saul. And David goes up there, and the idea is that he's going he's gonna to fight for the Philistines. He's going to help the Philistines against Saul. Well, fortunately for him, some of the Philistines uh, don't like that idea. They, they just don't trust David. They don't think that he will help them. So that, that's good for David. But he goes back to Ziklag. And he, when he gets to Ziklag, he discovers something that's very unpleasant. So Ziklag has become their, their base of operations, their headquarters. And when David and all of his men went up to Aphek, they left the women and children in Ziklag. When they came back to Ziklag, they discovered that the Amalekites had raided Ziklag. And David's family and others were, were taken captive by the Amalekites. At first they didn't know who had done the raid on Ziklag, but fortunately for them they found an Egyptian who told them that it was the Amalekites. So then they went down here to pursue the Amalekites and to get to, to get their families back. And of course this reminds us of, of the time when Abraham rescued Lot. His, his nephew Lot had been taken captive and he went and rescued him. That's, that's what it reminds us of. Now here's another map of that. He went to Aphek, he came back down to Ziklag, discovered that his family had been captured, and he went in pursuit of the Amalekites. And David was very wise, very diplomatic. He didn't just give the spoils of war, after he defeated the Amalekites, to his men. He also gave, that, gave the spoils of war to other people who supported him. Now some of his warriors didn't like that, but it did prove to be a very wise move. And all of these cities here, that where you see the, uh, an empty circle, not a dot, but an empty circle, so like Hebron, and Eshtemoah, and Jatir, and Ramoth Negev, and uh, Horma, and Aror, these are all cities that were given some of the spoils of war that David had captured from the Amalekites. Another thing that I should point out is that, remember last week when we talked about the book of Judges, I mentioned how after the fifth and sixth cycles, it doesn't say that Israel had rest from her enemies, as it does with the first four cycles. So those two enemies, the Amalekites and the Philistines, continued to be a thorn in Israel's side. Jephthah and Samson were able to keep them at bay for a while, but they were not really defeated. They continued to be a problem into the reign of David.
And now we come to Saul's death on Mount Gilboa. This is up, up in this area. And it's, it's in that same area where um, Deborah was fighting in that same general area. And, and also Gideon, even more so. Some of the judges that were fighting up in this Jezreel Valley area. So that the, the mountains of Israel generally run north and south, but at a certain point they go off diagonally towards the, towards the sea. And this is Mount Carmel, the other Carmel that we're more familiar with, uh, where, they, where the prophet Elisha, Elijah had his uh, confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And then further down this, this ridge is called Mount the Gilboa Ridge from Mount Gilboa. And it was near here that uh, Gideon's men made the, the separation between the 300. He whittled it down from about 10,000 to about 300 at the, at the spring there. Well, that's right at the, at the foot of this Gilboa Ridge. So there's an inset here. See, the, uh, the Philistines, I, I mentioned that when David went up to Aphek, they were planning to go to war against Israel. So they went up into this area, and Israel went up here. And, of course, this is where Saul had that infamous meeting with the witch, Endor, he disguised himself and went by night, both so that he could slip through the through the uh, lines of the Philistines, and also so that he could disguise himself from the witch, because Saul had actually banned all of the witches from from his territory. But here, here he is going to a witch himself. He goes to consult the dead Samuel, and Sam, he is told that he's going to be dead soon too, and he is, because the Israelites have a battle with the Philistines, and then the Israelites flee, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, wind up on top of Mount Gilboa. Here's another map of that. They had this battle where, the, where you see the uh, star there. Is the Philistines have come up from Aphek. Now this this inset down here is kind of confusing because <laughs> you see that north is the bottom of the map, so it's kind of disorienting. So there's a battle, and the Israelites flee, and the main body of them wind up on Mount Gilboa. Once again, here's that indoor where Saul, Saul consulted the witch. Here's another map. This, the spring of Jezreel is the, the um, spring that I showed you last time with, with the judges. It's also called the spring of Herod, where, Saul, where uh, Gideon whittled these men down to 300. 
There's Endor. Here's Mount Tabor. Remember that figured into the battle of the battle between uh, Deborah and Barak and Israel's enemies at that time in the book of Judges. It's very interesting, and this is very telling. It, it shows you the difference between Saul and David in distress. Saul answered, I am in great distress. This was a time of turmoil in his life. So what did he do? He consulted the medium. David also, at this time when his family was taken captive and his, his men were close to rebelling because they, they were mad at him, they were angry with him for, for leaving the, the women and children in a sick life undependent. David was in great danger. He had been in danger from Saul. He was in danger at this time from even his own men. What did David do? He strengthened, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So you can see the the clear contrast between how the king, the ruling king at the time and the soon-to-be king, how they differed in their conduct. You can see why David is described as a man after God's own heart. Now, things that make you go, hmm. I'll begin by asking you what seems like a simple question. Who killed Goliath? Well, you probably will say, well, David killed Goliath. Everybody knows that David killed Goliath. Right? So David prevailed over the Philistine, Goliath, with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. Incidentally, just as an aside, it was a sling, not a slingshot. <laughs> That's one of my pet peeves when refer to it as a slingshot. It's not a, you know, a slingshot is the elastic thing that you throw, that you pull back on. It's, it's a sling, not a slingshot. But anyway, we think of David as killing Goliath, and rightfully so. But if you think that's just a slam dunk, that's an easy question, let me, let me tell you the rest of the story. Uh, and this is something that, that actually happened. Uh, so I, I've had first-hand experience with this. Our own uh, Eric Fredrickson was evangelizing some Muslims. And one of the things that Muslims like to do, especially, especially the, the Muslim clerics, the imams, they like to learn about what are thought to be Bible discrepancies, things that supposedly debunk the Bible and show that the Bible isn't true and it can't possibly be the Word of God. So the Muslim cleric, the imam, said to Eric, when Eric was trying to evangelize him, the Muslim cleric said, ask him this question, who killed Goliath? And Eric said, as any Christian would do, well, David, David killed Goliath. And the Muslim cleric said then, okay, if David killed Goliath, how come in 2 Samuel, 
21, verse 19, it says, Elhanan, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spirit was like a weaver's beam. So they would take that to mean that the Bible isn't true. Because one place it says David killed Goliath, and in another place it says Elhanan killed Goliath. So, um, incidentally, one of the things that I would suggest that you do is that if you're going to witness evangelized Muslims, that you go to their websites that, that deal with this, because you will find some of the, the main objections that they will present and they will confront Christians with. And if you're not prepared, you're stumped. You don't, you don't know what to say. But anyway, how, how can this be that, that David, we are told, killed Goliath? And in another place, we are told that Alhanan killed Goliath. Well, th this is something that I had, had looked at before. And this is from uh, an archaeologist named David Roll. I've met David Roll, I know him personally. And, and this is what, what he thinks was going on. And so the name David is actually a title or a royal coronation name. David, of course, means beloved, which was given to Elhanan when he became king of Hebron. So he thinks that Elhanan was originally David's name. And later on, he became David, became known as David. I'll give, I'll give you a contemporary example. You're all familiar with the actor. He was in a lot of westerns, John Wayne. Well, originally, his name wasn't John Wayne. Originally, his name was Marion Morrison. Marion spelled M-A-R-I-O-N, Marion. But it's not really a name for a, for a cowboy hero, is it? So he became John Wayne. That was his acting name. But if somebody showed you a photograph of John Wayne's childhood home, they would say, this was the home, the childhood home of John Wayne. Even though at that time he wasn't John Wayne. He hadn't yet become John Wayne. But because that is the, the name by which he became popular, the name by which he became famous, we call him John Wayne, even when we're talking about his early years, his childhood. So it could be the same with this Elhanan. He later became David, and that was the name that he was known by, the name that he was famous by, the name that he was popular by, and so that name was retroactively applied to him. So the point really, though, is that all of these things that are presented as contradictions and discrepancies in the Bible, there are explanations for them. So that is, that is the book of 1 Samuel, and next week we'll go on to 2 Samuel. So I'll close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for the 
stories that are preserved in the Bible. Examples, both positive and negative. Examples that we can learn from. Things to avoid and ways to remain faithful and loyal to you. We thank you also that you have given us your word in such a way that we need to study it, we need to understand it. We can't just read it once and say, oh, well, now I know everything. There's always something more to learn in your word. And you have designed that way, designed it that way. We thank you for it. We ask that you would help us to continue to study your word and to draw comfort and encouragement from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Dana. Let's see. I'm very glad you showed me how to use it.